0: Hey there, friends. Thanks for joining us online today to study God's Word together. We at First Christian Church here in beautiful Greene County, Tennessee, we focus on the Word of God as the center of our ministry and growth at church and in our lives because it's the Word that does the work. We like to go what we say straight up Bible here. We like to go straight up Bible so that it's the Good Shepherd who is calling you to Himself so that your growth is God's work in you. So grab your Bible, follow along on the sermon guide that's on our app, and let's dive in together for week four in our series called Galatians Gospel of Free Grace. Now during this series, even if you've already got a Bible reading plan that you follow, which by the way, you can also get on our app, I want to challenge you to go ahead and also read through Galatians once a week. It's only six chapters and it will be a big help to you in our study time together. So today's message is called Gospel Freedom Fighters, and we'll be studying Galatians the second chapter, verses one through ten. So let's get ready for that by reading Galatians two verses three through five, and then we'll pray and dive in. So Galatians two, three through five. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Lord God, we submit ourselves again to the authority of your holy word in our lives asking that your spirit would soften our hearts to hear your voice and open our eyes to see your work. Show us Jesus, teach us the gospel, and make us your people for the sake of glorifying and communicating the goodness of your holy name we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, but when someone crosses me or accuses me of doing or saying something wrong, especially if it's unwarranted, I can feel my chest expand with air, my eyes get focused, the hairs in the back of my neck stand up, my mind starts racing warp speed, and I am ready to defend myself to the death. The first two chapters of Galatians makes it sound like Paul is ready to defend himself to the death. But in this case, unlike most of my personal examples of being ready to fight, it's a justified fight. Because not only is Paul innocent of wrongdoing, he's trying to maintain the purity of the simple gospel of free grace for the sake of the Galatian Christians. His hackles are all up and he's ready to fight. And so we're picking up here in the middle of his righteous defense of his message and ministry in Galatians 2, verse 1, first word only, then. The word then connects this section today with the preceding section. In other words, Paul is continuing to defend himself as an authoritative apostle who should be trusted over against the Judaizers who were leading the Galatians astray. Now, friendly reminder that the Judaizers were Bible experts who claimed that you had to become a Jew before you became a Christian, which was a false teaching. It was a false teaching because it was adding to the gospel of what we're calling free grace, Paul's gospel of free grace. We'll talk a lot more later on in our series about why adding to the gospel of free grace is a problem. But what you need to know today is that Paul is defending himself and the gospel here in 2, 1 to 10, our section for today, by proving three things. First, not only had his gospel of free grace been tried and tested by the bigwigs in Jerusalem, we'll learn about that soon, but they had sent him to be a missionary to the Gentiles, and ultimately, he's proving that he was fighting for the Galatians to experience the true freedom of the gospel of free grace. And so, Paul writes, Galatians 2, verse 1. So then after 14 years, which probably means 14 years after Acts 9 that we looked at last week, 14 years after Paul became a follower of Jesus. So Paul's been in ministry for a while now. Then after 14 years, he says, I went up again to Jerusalem, which was the mothership for the Christians at the time, with Barnabas. One of Paul's close co workers in ministry, taking Titus along with me. So after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now, Titus was another ministry co worker. And Paul mentions him here because he was a Gentile, meaning, and this is important, meaning he was not a Jew before he became a Christian. So Paul is recounting a, f- a former ministry experience as part of proving his case here, that his gospel is tried and tested, that he was sent to the Gentiles, and that he understands what he's talking about when it comes to keeping gospel freedom intact, and he uses Titus as a part of that test case to show that his gospel is legitimate. So verse 2, he says, I went up, meaning I went up to Jer- Jerusalem, because of a revelation Because somehow God supernaturally led him there. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, who, as we'll find out in verse 9, are Peter, James, and John. They're the influential ones here, the three main leaders of the original 12 apostles. Paul mentions them here in our passage four times as a way to add legitimacy to his claims. And so he says, I went to Jerusalem and set before Peter, James, and John the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. In order to make sure that my work of proclaiming the gospel would be as effective as possible. And here's the key, verse 3. But even Titus, remember his co-worker who was with me, he was a Gentile. Was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now, saying here that Titus was a Greek is just another way of saying that he was a Gentile. He was ethnically and religiously non Jewish. Paul said it this way, referring to Greeks, at least 12 other times in his New Testament books. So when you come across it in Paul's writings, you'll know he usually just means Gentile. Now, pointing out that Titus was a Gentile before he became a Christian is significant here because when Paul was in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem leaders did not require Titus to get circumcised in order to become what the Judaizers in Galatia considered a a full Christian. Now, parenthetically, in case you're not aware, Circumcision is just a word that means to cut around. And it refers to the Jewish religious practice of cutting around the foreskin of the you-know-what as a sign of being part of the covenant people of God before Jesus came. And by the way, if you don't know what, no need to look it up. Just ask someone you trust. That'll be plenty of explanation. So anyway, Paul mentions going to Jerusalem with Titus his greek his gentile his non-jewish co-worker he mentions going to jerusalem with titus to talk with peter james and john the big wigs from jerusalem who were three of the uh, leaders of the original twelve apostles he mentions all this because think about it if ever there was a time when Paul would have been corrected on this particular question in Galatians of whether people were required to be circumcised before they became a Christian or whether they should follow the Jewish practices and laws before becoming a Christian, this would have been the time. I mean, circumcision was a really important sign of the covenant between God and his people. And these were the three pillars of the original twelve apostles who were sent by Jesus himself to establish the church. And they had all previously been Jews like Paul had. And they didn't require Titus to be circumcised, even though he was a Gentile. In fact, in verse 3 here, when Paul says that Titus was not forced, he uses a word here forced in the ESV and compelled in a number of other translations, he uses a word that was used to speak of uh, ways that the ruling Gentile government at the time would force or compel the Jews to abide by their Gentile cultural rules. So Paul is saying, remember how we who were Jews, we didn't like being compelled to change our practices to fit the non-Jewish practices? Yeah, well, same thing here. And the three main pillars of the original 12 apostles didn't compel Titus to be circumcised. But as we'll see in verses 4 and following here, even though the Christian bigwigs in Jerusalem didn't require circumcision and other such Jewish practices before becoming a Christian, others did try to require it, even, even then at that time. Which means, key point that Paul had encountered this issue with false teachers before he ever got to the Galatians, before he wrote this letter to the Galatians. When he was in Jerusalem, 14 years after Acts 9, before he got to uh, the Galatians, he encountered this exact question about circumcision and becoming a Jew before becoming a Christian. Jump in at verse 4. He says this, Yet, because of false Brothers, literally pseudo-brothers, they were fakes, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom. Notice Paul is using uh, spy terms, espionage terms, to describe how these pseudo-brothers had infiltrated to spy out our freedom, meaning they had infiltrated to conspire like undercover agents to find those places where we experience our freedom, where we experience our freedom, keep reading, our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Why? So that they might bring us into slavery so that they might bring us back into slavery under the law that condemns us without Christ. Now, without getting into it too much here, because we'll spend two chapters on related matters, Paul speaking of those false teachers spying out our freedom in Christ Speaking about that as taking us back into slavery is Paul's way of saying that it's like going back to depending on the law for our salvation. And he says that's useless because no one can do that. Only Christ can fulfill the conditions of the law for us. So when you add things to the gospel, you take away Christ. And you go back to being enslaved to the law that condemns. So there's a lot at stake here for Paul. He's very serious about all this. He says the freedom experienced in the good news that Jesus fulfilled the law for us. That's the good news that Jesus fulfilled the law for us. The freedom that we experience in that is what's at stake here. He's saying we cannot give in to those who spy out our freedom and they spy it out by saying things like, aha, you're missing this or you're lacking that, or you have to do this or make sure of that in order to be a real Christian. No, 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 no. Paul says, don't go back into slavery to the law. That's not how this works. That's why he says this verse five, he says to them, to these Judaizers, to those when he was there in Jerusalem the first time, to those Judaizers, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, Galatians. He says, we held our ground against these false teachers to ensure that you would experience true freedom in Christ and not slavery to the law. Paul is saying, I was there when these initial questions about the gospel were being worked out, and I fought for free grace so that you might experience the true fullness of what Christ can offer. Don't forget, I didn't receive the gospel from any man, but from God himself, from Christ who revealed it to me on the road to Damascus. That's why we cannot let any man, no human, not even an angel, not even the three big three fancy pants apostles from Jerusalem and certainly not these Judaizers. We can't let them impress upon us anything other than the grace of God that comes to us in the cross of Christ. Galatians 1, 3 through 5. Not only did I not let the Judaizers sway me in our first go around in Jerusalem, but remember, I got this from God like he revealed himself to you by his power. So don't let any man sway you which is which is what he is in effect saying again just like he did last week in verse 6 he says and again from those who seemed to be influential peter james and john what they were makes no difference to me god shows no partiality those i say who seemed influential added nothing to me they didn't try to add anything to my message as if it were somehow lacking and it would have been the perfect opportunity for them to. Verse 7. On the contrary. When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, to the, to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apost- apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. In other words, if God sent and works through Peter, To the Jews, he did the same for me. And when James and Cephas, when James, Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace, when they saw the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas, co-worker, to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. They confirmed, the apostles confirmed that my call and my message were legit, asking only one thing of me that I already had in mind, verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Friends, this week we have one simple but very important practical application I want us to make today. And it's simply this. You cannot add anything to the gospel. You cannot add anything to the gospel. When you do, it becomes something else. Look back at verse 6 in our passage today. This is where Paul recounts that, that Peter, James, and John, he says, added nothing to me. Though it sounds like it at first, this isn't really a negative statement. Paul's just, he's just putting the matter plainly. They knew my message. They learned of Titus. They didn't ask him to be circumcised. They corrected nothing about my doctrine, he says. They added nothing. They added nothing to my message, my ministry, my understanding of the gospel of free grace. In other words, They accepted Paul's gospel of free grace as it was, as Paul presented it, free grace plus nothing more. You see the apostles and Paul here, they understood what we need to understand clearly and to believe deeply to our bones so that it will be the center of our identity and it simply This idea, it is impossible to add to the finished work of Christ. Hebrews 7.27 says that since Jesus is our high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, he has no need like the former high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, Since he was mediator and high priest, he was, Christ is, mediator and high priest once for all. His finished work on the cross is everything we need. Hebrews 9.12 says that Jesus entered into the holy places once for all. Why? To secure an eternal redemption. Hebrews 9.26 says that Christ appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself for his people. Hebrews 10.10 says that we who are his people have been sanctified through the offering of Jesus' body once for all. Hebrews 10.14 says he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified by a single offering. He's done it all. You cannot add to it. You cannot improve it. The cross was enough and it's all you'll ever need. And when you try to add to it, you actually begin to destroy it. It becomes something else entirely. And Paul's warning us here that adding to the finished work of Christ is nothing other than going back to being enslaved to the law that condemns. That's what the Judaizers were trying to do to the Galatians and what Paul is so vehemently warning them against. Friends, this is a perennial danger for us even today. When we elevate something, even something good, something that is in addition to the gospel, when we elevate something good in addition to the gospel to become something of ultimate importance, the good news Becomes faith in Christ plus something else. Faith in Christ plus something a particularly deep and, and fuller experience of the Holy Spirit. Maybe a, some particular ministry area we love, which usually happens to be where we serve. Maybe some particular method for deeper and higher spiritual life or or particular form of devotions or or a method of growing a church or the best way to raise a family or some particularly interesting doctrine or style of worship or political cause or social concern or way of doing this or, or that that we like or that we're aware of, that we taught or we experienced, you can cannot add to the gospel and have it remain the gospel. Friends, like the old hymn says, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. When we begin elevating even good things to the status of ultimate things in our lives and expecting that of others, we are in danger of, of spying out one another's freedom. What's at stake here for Paul and for us is the freedom experienced in the good news that Jesus fulfilled the law for us. We must become like Paul here. We must become gospel freedom fighters. If we give in to those who insist on adding to the gospel of free grace we are functionally undoing Christ's work for us and lacking belief that what he did was enough. It's like admitting to someone else that our own failures and sins still condemn us and that we agree that we must live up to their false expectations that enslave us instead of living from the center of our identity that claims that Christ is our once-for-all Savior, whose death was sufficient to save and cannot be undone by adding to it. If we give in to those who insist on adding to the gospel of free grace, we are agreeing to being enslaved by their unbiblical expectations. Instead, friends, let's fight. Let's fight for gospel freedom in our lives by insisting, Galatians 1, 3 to 5, that the grace that comes from God comes from Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from evil because he's a God whose desire is for us to live from and rest in and reclaim the finished work of Jesus. Fight! for the gospel of free grace in your own life. And don't let unbiblical expectations or man-made traditions or others' insecurities spy out your freedom. So let's end by asking this question. Where in your life are you needing to rest in, to reclaim Christ's finished work as a way to keep others from spying out your freedom. Let's pray, friends. Father in heaven, we're grateful to you for the life of those like Paul, the lives of those like Paul who have gone before, who fought for the freedom that is ours in Jesus. We ask that you would help us to be fully satisfied in the finished work of Jesus alone. So that that truth of the freedom we have, that we are no longer enslaved to sin, that we are not condemned by the law, would be the center of our identity would be how we think about ourselves and the world around us so that, so that for ourselves and for others, we could be people who extend that grace in ways that exhibit, that model, that show that we believe that the finished work of Jesus was enough for us. Father, forgive us for burdening others with expectations that are unbiblical. Forgive us for holding on to man-made traditions that don't come from your word. Forgive us for imposing on one another, Lord, a messianic weight and burden no one can bear. And at the same time, Lord, thank you for Jesus, whose perfect, sinless life lived for us, could stand to make us righteous before you because on the cross, his atonement was a sacrifice that you accepted. We love you for that amazing truth, Lord, that you give us grace in Jesus. Make of, us pe- make of us people who embody that truth so that we would be a witness to who you are for us and what you've done for us. And the person of Jesus whose finished work is by itself sufficient.